It is a joy to greet you this morning. I've been attending on Wednesday nights, and we've got about 20 women coming to do the same study on Wednesday nights. And you all look pretty bright and fresh, and your hair looks nice. On Wednesday nights, we're usually rushing in, smelling like supper or spit up, and um, <laughs> looking a bit weary. So it's nice to see a bright group of women this morning. Um, in my preparations, in, in the time of preparation, I came across an outline for the book of Job, which deals with some whys of God also. And I have never had an outline of Job make me laugh, but this one did, so I want to share it with you. It was, in a, it was in a John Piper blog, so if you follow that, you may have seen it last week. And he quotes Ted Olson, who is senior editor at Christianity Today. And he summarized Job in a tweet. It was like this. Trouble comes. Job, why, friends, you sinned? Job, I did not. God, look at all the cool animals. And I just loved that because God takes us from the level where we live down here with all the whys and the you did that and I didn't to his level. I created it all. I know the beginning from the end. Look at me. And that just really encouraged my heart. And I think that we can come to the book of Habakkuk with some of the same outlook. And it made me want to do a very small outline of Habakkuk, which I, just, which I did just for my own sake. And it really clarified things for me. So I just wanted to leave you with that as we start. And now let's just go to the Lord as we uh, begin. I just want to pray for us. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are the one who knows the beginning from the end. Without you, nothing would even exist. We pray that you will be with us this morning. I pray that you will bring in those who are maybe running a little late. I pray that you will minister to each heart out of your abundance. We lift up to you the staff of our church as they meet these next two days. We ask your guidance and wisdom, your blessing, your strengthening. We trust in their leadership, O oh Father. And we ask you to work through them in the lives of us and in the lives of this community. We pray for those who are caring for the children and we ask that you would give them a joyful morning that our hearts may be attentive to what you have for us here. We thank you for Habakkuk, for his life, for his struggles, for his writing. And we thank you for those who have preserved your word through the centuries at great cost so that we may have this treasure. Now open it up to us, O oh Lord. We wait on you. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you'll open your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. And you have your outline in front of you. You're welcome to write some notes. Not everything will be on that outline. Habakkuk 
As we begin, I want to say a few things about Habakkuk, the man who wrote this book. And it won't be much because not much is known. Um, the scripture calls him the prophet, and really there's not a whole lot more than that that is known. Some of the other books of prophecy begin with the name of the father of the man who wrote and the names of the king under which uh, he, he served. But here we just know that this oracle, this warning, this message, this heavy message, and that's what an oracle usually is, is coming from a prophet of God. And interestingly enough, there are only three others who are so described in the opening of their books. And the other two are Haggai and Zechariah. So that means that Habakkuk is the only pre-exilic prophet who is specifically identified at the beginning of his book as a prophet of God. It's thought that he may have been from the tribe of Levi because of the musical notations that occur in chapter 3. And also, uh, people who study style say that this is largely a, a book of poetry. It's written like poetry. And the final chapter is really a psalm. And parts of it have been sung, and you may have even heard parts of the book of Habakkuk sung. The main thing that we know is that he was chosen by God to give a message to his people at a very dark time in their national life. He was a contemporary of uh, Jeremiah, who also had a very difficult message for God's people. And he was a contemporary of Daniel, who was uh, being taken to Babylon sometime during this time. Just for your personal reading, the Babylonians are sometimes referred to also as the Chaldeans, and Babylonia is sometimes referred to as Chaldea. So if you see those in Scripture, we are speaking of the Babylonians. Okay, let's, we're going to begin in chapter 1, and if you have a Bible that has headings, it will say Habakkuk's complaint right off the bat. I wanted to deal with that before we go into the actual words that he wrote. You're probably aware that God often judges complaining, but he responds to a complaint. And so I want to deal just a little bit with the difference in those two so that you can distinguish them, not only in Scripture, but in your own heart, which is where this is specifically important. To do that, I'm going to ask if you would not mind turning in your Bible back to Exodus chapter 11. Excuse me, um, Numbers chapter 11. I was wondering why my bookmark was not there. <laughs> okay, Numbers chapter 11. We're going to look at the very first verse. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. Notice it's in the hearing of the Lord. And when God heard them, his anger was aroused. 
Then look at verse 4. The rabble, that's the people from Egypt who accompanied the Israelites, the rabble with them began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Skip on down to verse 10. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. This is just one example of complaining. It focuses on circumstances with the back toward God. It's talking about God, but not to him. It is not grateful for his provision, but complaining about his provision. It does not allow for the development of character. It just wants its own way. That's complaining. A complaining spirit does not want correction, just wants its own way. And it results in discouragement for leaders and others who work with people. And it causes anger in the heart of God who so generously provided the manna. And the verses we skipped described the manna and all the ways it could be pre prepared and how wonderful it was. Complaints, on the other hand, are a biblical... Um, example of how to handle hard things. We see complaints in the Psalms, and we see them also in the prophets and other places in Scripture. And a complaint, and some of this is in your notes now, focuses on God. It turns toward God. So I'd like to look now at what Moses does. So in verse 12 of the same chapter of Numbers 11, Moses asks the Lord... Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Totally different perspective. He is looking to God and asking him why. And he goes on and he describes how hard it is. And he says, um, Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now, if I've found favor in your eyes, and do not let me face my own ruin. Can you see the difference in the complaint and the complaining? And look at the difference in God's response. The Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's leaders. And he goes on down and says, have them come to the tent of meeting. I will come down and speak with you there. And I will take of the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. God is responsive to a heartfelt complaint that comes to him looking for his solution. So with that in mind, let's now go back to Habakkuk.
chapter 1. Habakkuk says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. We might feel that we could say that some of the same things in our day. The law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. This was an accurate description of the time in which Habakkuk lived. There had been the good king Josiah, not too many years before this time, and he brought about many reforms in the land of Judah. Of course, um, Judah and Israel have been separated kingdoms at this time. This is during the divided kingdom. And Israel has been taken into captivity already in 722. So they are out of the picture. So it's just Judah now. And um, those reforms are in the past. After Josiah, his son Jehoiakim became king. And he was very evil. He was a wicked king. And so all that came back into their culture. Then Jehoiachin became king after Jehoiakim died, and he was taken by Babylon. Babylon was oppressing them at this time and demanding payment from, is, from, the, from the land of Judah. So Jehoiachin had already been taken to, uh, or would be taken to Babylon. And then the third son, all three of these are sons of the good king Josiah, and then um, the king of Babylon chose the next king, and that was Mataniah, who was a third son of Josiah, and gave him a Babylonian name by which we know him in scripture, Zedekiah. So Zedekiah was the final king, and this is the time in which Habakkuk was coming before the Lord with this complaint. And he talks about idolatry in his next complaint. And scripture speaks to that specifically because um, Jeremiah in God's message to the people at this same time said, they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. The same thing is said other places in scripture. So the people have become worthless they have followed idols, they have turned back to evil. So this is a legitimate complaint that Habakkuk is bringing to the Lord. So then the Lord speaks. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. Can you imagine Habakkuk's response to that? And, we're going, and you've read it. They are feared and dreaded people. This is verse 7. They are a law unto themselves. In verse 8, their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. 
This is God speaking now about what the Babylonians are going to do, but this is not new. I'm going to turn back to Deuteronomy 28. At the end of Moses' life, he laid out before the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, the blessings and the curses. And these are the words that God gave to Moses. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the ends of the earth like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. They will devour the young of your livestock, and it goes on. They will besiege the cities. So God, through Moses, had already warned the people that this was coming, and now he speaks, and he is bringing on them what he had promised centuries before. So then Habakkuk replies, look at verse 12. Oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. Oh Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. Oh rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Do you see the turmoil that his heart is in? He knows that they deserve punishment. But how can God use these people to be the ones to bring it? And then he said, you have made men like fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He's talking about he's going to catch, they catch men. And then what do they do? Look at verse 16. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. He's speaking about the idolatry of the people of Babylon. They're going to come in and they are going to destroy the people and then they're going to worship their own strength. So that is his second complaint that he brings to God. At this point, I just want to say, do you have a complaint in your own heart, a legitimate complaint perhaps that you want to bring to the Lord this morning? Is there something you don't understand about relationships or the circumstances in your life or the way that God seems to be working in a way that was totally unexpected to you? It is right to verbalize those things to God. He will hear you as you come to him. And we're going to talk more about faith as we go on this morning. But our, what we learn from Habakkuk is our eyes need to be on him. Trusting in his character and trusting in his word. Because God is often doing something far bigger than we ever expect. And it often takes him a lot longer than we think it's going to. But he does deal with these issues, and it is good to bring them to him. So let's look at chapter 2, where God answers. There are only two specific things God says for Habakkuk to do. He says, write, and then further down, he says, wait. So in um, verse 2, he says, write, and then in verse 3, he says, wait. 
And I'm just going, you don't need to flip there, but I'm just going to flip to 1 Peter because I love this in thinking about the prophets um, concerning this salvation, meaning what Christ has done. The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing to when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, it was revealed to them, so likely to Habakkuk, that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you. Even angels long to look into these things. I am so thankful that Habakkuk wrote these things because they are instructive for us and God intended it to be that way. He wants these things written so that future generations can read them and know them, and also so that we can remember them clearly. I don't know if you have ever made a promise that you haven't written down, but I can tell you what happens when you try to remember it. You're not sure if you said before supper or um, I would definitely do it or we do it this week. It's just hard to remember the details of our own promises. God wanted the things written down so that we could count on them. And then he, he goes on, he said, the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. And then he begins in chapter four speaking about Babylon. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. And then this is the highlight of the whole book and really the basis of all that Habakkuk has to say to us. But the righteous will live by his faith. God will bring destruction, but the righteous will live by his faith. This is quoted three times in the New Testament and every time it's quoted, it has tremendous impact. So I'm just gonna briefly Mention these, it's really described very well on page 127 in your book. But um, on, one, on page 129 in your book, it tells about Martin Luther, for whom these very words changed the course of his life. He was crawl. this is not in your book, he was crawling up the stairs at the Scala Sancta in Rome, trying to earn, trying to do enough to please God and to get God to speak to him when he remembered these words, the righteous live by faith. And that was the beginning of the Reformation. Then in Galatians 3, verse 11, it's quoted again. And here, the Hebrew people, the, the Gentiles and the Jews were mixing in the church and how do we balance the demands of the law. The law is beautiful. The Old Testament law is beautiful. It reveals the character of God. It reveals the way in which he wants us to live. But when it is forced on someone externally and not coming up from inside through the Holy Spirit, it becomes oppressive and burdensome. And when the people were dealing with this, this was quoted, the righteous live by faith. And then in Hebrews 10, 38, right before that wonderful chapter in Hebrews about all the people who lived by faith in the Old Testament, who died in their faith, not seeing the promises fulfilled, this is, this is repeated. 
the righteous live by faith. And that's the kind of women we need to be too. We live by faith. However, I want to be very careful here because I see when I go shopping the little placards you can hang in your home. Faith, just believe. And when I was going through a really desperate time, someone said to me, just believe. It's all going to work out great. That was no comfort to me at all because I didn't know what God was doing. I wanted someone to encourage me to hang on to God because he knows what's going to happen and he can either change the circumstances or he can change my heart to love those circumstances and to grow in them. So just be very careful. Faith that is not anchored in something really firm, the character of God, the word of God, Jesus Christ himself is no real faith. It's just a nice feeling, a nice expression, but it is not true faith. So don't be deceived there. Um, Life will test our doctrine in many ways. And if your faith is in anything less worthy than the Lord God himself and the hope that he gives in Jesus Christ, it will be tested. And everything else will fall away. But I promise you this, that will not, it will not be taken from you. And that's what God is saying to Habakkuk at this low point in his life. And then he goes on, and there are woes given about Babylon. And I just want to say a few things about the cruelty that was expressed to the Assyrians and the Babylonians. I thought Christina did a great job in teaching last week and just telling us we don't even want to know all the things that the Assyrians and the Babylonians did. And I just read one thing and I'm putting it out of my mind. And, um, but the scripture tells us some things. And, you know, we can trust God to give us enough. In Isaiah 47, 6, when he is pronouncing coming judgment. Isaiah, in advance, prophesied the judgment that was going to come on Babylon also. And this is what God is saying. I gave my people into your hand, and you showed them no mercy. Even on the aged, you laid a heavy yoke. And it goes on to describe the things that Babylon would do in the future. This was prophecy at the time. Then in Jeremiah... Um, he tells about what happened when that last king, Mataniah, named Zedekiah by Babylon, he was captured trying to sneak out of Jerusalem in the night and going down toward the Dead Sea thinking he could get away from the Babylonians, but he was captured. All of his sons and all of the nobles of Jerusalem were captured. And right there in the desert... All of his sons were killed. He had to watch as all of his sons were killed and all of his nobles were killed. And then they put out his eyes, put bronze shackles on him, and he walked all the way to Babylon. Can you imagine wounds maybe infected and walking and stumbling without vision? And the last thing you saw was that. And, and then in Second Chronicles 36, they killed the young men of Jerusalem in the sanctuary in God's temple. 
They spared not the young, the old, or the women. They took the sacred gold objects used in worshiping the holy God and used them in their own temples. They set fire to the temple. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned the palaces and destroyed everything of value. And if you go to Jerusalem today, uh, excavated out, there are some rooms that sh still show the charred remains from that burning that took place. Um, some of that occurred in 70, and some of that occurred even earlier during this time. So God is promising that there will be judgment on Babylon. And amazingly enough, 100 to 150 years before this, he told Isaiah to name the name of the Persian king who would bring judgment on Babylon. And he called his name Cyrus. And he said, even though you do not, you do not acknowledge me, I'm going to exalt you and use you in my plan. I just, I don't know about you, but I find that absolutely incredible that a hundred years or two, or maybe 150 years before it happened, God told the actual name of the king, and it happened. Cyrus, uh, king of Persia, came in, destroyed the Babylonians, and God used him mightily, and God also put kindness in his heart toward the Hebrew people, and he sent them back to rebuild Jerusalem. And God said that before it ever happened. So we are just bringing in all of, I just wanted to bring in some of the good things that God was going to do. We can look at these woes. Um, verse 6, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy. Verse 9, woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. And then he stops in the middle of the woes and says this, and it points to Jesus. And we are specifically looking for Jesus throughout these Old Testament prophets. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Jesus said the end will come when, this, when the gospel is preached in every land. This is coming. And it's hinted at right here. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord, Jesus Christ himself, will cover the earth. Every eye will see him and every knee will bow. What hope, he interjects. This hope is not only for Habakkuk and the Israelites. The hope is also for, for the Babylonians. We don't, I don't know, I mean scholars may know, there may be some Babylonian people who did come and join with the Israelites. God has been faithful to do that. All through his dealings with people, he has brought in the nations. And so it is likely that there were some Babylonian people who trusted in the God of Israel. And going on down to verse 17, the violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. So, and then following on with that, for you have shed man's blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. 
and he speaks to idols, but I want to look at the last thing that God says to Habakkuk, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And then Habakkuk responds. He sees hope in what God has said to him. At this point, I just want to ask, is there maybe a painful relationship facing you now? Something that you don't see an answer to? The Lord and his position, his sovereignty, and his character can be a comfort to you. And I want to just read a couple more verses. I like to find, when we're studying the Old Testament, I like to find God's hope and character in the Old Testament because we often think that it's only in the New Testament. So I'm going to turn to um, Isaiah 45 and then to Ezekiel 18. In Isaiah 45... And this is where he spoke about Cyrus. Um, so, th um, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. When disasters come, the Lord is not caught blindsided by that. And then in Ezekiel 18, we've just read now about what God is going to do to Babylon. But I just want to, I guess I want to show the goodness of God's character because it's easy to get sidetracked by, what, by God's judgment. So in Ezekiel 18:23. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, I am not pleased, rather am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? That's God's desire. He doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And then in the last verse of that same chapter, he states it. He said it as a question there, but now he makes it as a statement. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. I want you, like Habakkuk, to have reason to worship the character of God because he is good and his mercies are new every morning even to the wicked, even to the ones he's punishing, it's always his desire that they will turn to him. So with whatever painful issue, we can turn to the living God. And I wanted to just read you a quote from Corrie ten Boom. I'm assuming most of you are familiar with her. She lived through the Holocaust and Auschwitz and many horrible things. And she said, never be afraid to trust 
an unknown future to a known God. And the, the thing I want most for us this morning is to know God better when we come away from this study of Habakkuk because he truly is our hope. Okay. Now, we get back to Habakkuk. Okay. And this is one that has been used as a psalm and a song. Lord, this is verse one, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. This is his one request. He asks God, show yourself strong again. And in your wrath, which I know is coming, remember mercy. So, and you have the outline there. He makes this request. And then he recalls what all... God has done, let's see, starting with verse 3, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him, pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. He's remembering the history that his people have with God. And then he says, his ways are eternal. He is remembering that the God who did that is still in control of everything. And then he goes on, were, uh, this is in verse 7. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with the rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. I'm not sure all the things he was thinking of, but it may possibly have been when the Egyptian army was killed by the sea when it flowed back over them. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens, verse 11, at the glint of your flying arrows. And then skip on down to verse 13. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. The anointed one is a specific hint again toward the one that God promised in Genesis, that seed, Messiah Jesus who would come. There will yet be an anointed one who will do the perfect thing to restore relationship between God and his fallen creation. And then after after he says these things, remembering he's recalled what God has done, his heart comes to rest. And I just wanted to read verses 16 through the end and make a few final comments. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity 
to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. And there he is looking forward, although unknown to him, but now known to us, to Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, who would do the Lord's perfect work. There was a young couple in this church who chose these verses and they used them on their wedding program. And I can never read those without thinking of them and just wanting to pray for them. Their hope was firmly placed in the Lord. They had no idea what God would do in their lives. He has done well in their lives, but they have suffered hard things too. I wonder, <clears throat> as you, excuse me, that's pretty loud. <laughs> um, as you read this, did you think of your own worst case scenario? I couldn't help but think of mine and I wrote it down. It helped me confront some of the things that I'm afraid of. I didn't bring it with me this morning, but I remember that it started with if the worst possible person is elected president of the United States, if my husband leaves me for another woman, if I get old and sick and all, I lose all my teeth and all my hair, and I live destitute and unable to help my grandchildren, and my children are dead and gone, these are some of the worst things I could think of in my life. Um, yet, I will rejoice in God my Savior. So I encourage you to confront some of your fears. Write them down. Because God will be faithful. In another study that I'm doing on Revelation, this statement was made in the, in the material that I was reading just this week. I just wanted to share it with you because it seems so appropriate to the study of Habakkuk. Truth that exceeds the grip of our minds, we can't get our minds around it, is within the grasp of our faith. Though we cannot understand things with our minds, it is within the grasp of our faith. And that faith is in the Lord God Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his Son. And then just a few verses that have meant a lot to me. And these are all from the Old Testament again, where God speaks of his holy character. In Numbers eleven twenty-three, Is the Lord's arm too short? Genesis eighteen fourteen. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And Genesis 18:25, will not the judge of the whole earth do right? So I just leave you with those questions this morning as you contemplate whatever may be facing you today or in the near future. And let's just go to the Lord again in prayer. 
Oh, Heavenly Father, we long to have our faith firmly anchored in you. The things in this life often beat us around, and sometimes we find that hard, but we know that you have given us the strength through Jesus Christ to hold on to you. And Lord, we know that you're able to do abundantly, exceedingly more than we can imagine. We know that you are the one who was able to keep us from stumbling. We know that you are the one who intercedes for us at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And we know that if God did not withhold Christ from us, that he will not withhold anything that we need for life and godliness. We express these things to you because they are our hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.